Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to Unheard Ideas. I'm Florence Reed. One of the many clashes currently happening inside the modern feminist movement is between the sex-positive feminists and the sex-negative feminists that some people call the prudes. The former position argues for the virtues of no-holds-barred sexual freedom, while the latter believes that liberal feminism's focus on sex has come at a cost to women. Joining me to get a firm grip on this slippery issue are two women from opposite sides of this argument. Both are returning guests to the channel, Live from Austin, we have the sex worker and top OnlyFans star, Ayala. And trying not to wake up her sleeping baby in the next room, we have the author of a new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, Louise Perry. Welcome back, both of you. Hello, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. So Louise, let's use the title of your book for a starting point for this conversation. You have made a case against the sexual revolution. In short, what is that case? So my argument starts from these somewhat controversial recognition that there are some very important differences between men and women in terms of the physical differences, which ought to be obvious, but aren't necessarily in the women, women are the ones who get pregnant. We're much smaller than men. Um, we're much more vulnerable to violence um, from men in any kind of heterosexual encounter. Um, we suffer all the consequences, negative consequences of hormonal birth control, etc. There are also psychological differences between the sexes, which I think there's very strong evidence to suggest are at least partially innate. There are average differences, so there are plenty of outliers, but they are quite profound. And one of the differences between the sexes on average is that men are much more interested in casual sex than women are, and are also more interested in things like watching porn, buying sex, you know, doing all of the things that have become much more socially acceptable post-sexual revolution. And the argument that I make is that even though there are plenty of exceptions to this rule, at the population level, a culture of um, sexual hyperliberalism suits men much more than it does women in terms of their preferences, and women carry almost all of the negative consequences. So in summary, you're saying that the sexual revolution forced women to, to compromise on their sexual preferences and was tailored towards towards men's sexual needs. Is that it? The, the, so the sexual revolution encouraged women to behave, to imitate masculine sexuality is basically what it is. And I think that that on, on mass is not good for women, for the wellbeing of women. So Ayala, you, you are a porn performer. Do you think that you are imitating male sexuality in your everyday work? Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, a lot of what you said, I, I don't disagree with. Uh, there's definitely like porn is like purchased mostly by men. Uh, men are typically the primary consumers of the content that I create. 
they like basically don't exist any female purchasers of porn. I mean, like very, very, very tiny percentage. Uh, so yeah, it, it's a um, pretty like male oriented in regards to like the actual like paying money for it. I mean, a good chunk of women do in fact watch porn, but uh, don't typically pay quite as much. I think the Pareto distribution is is what's going on in porn, right? That women will like the 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 mild to moderate porn consumers are more likely to be women, but the really heavy users are overwhelmingly male, and also sex buyers are overwhelmingly male. It, it does even yeah. out a little bit if you if you include like consumption of erotic content at all. So if you are doing like like erotica, uh, then we it starts to the gap starts to close a bit. Yeah. So if we accept that porn is engaged with more by men, and maybe it is driven towards a male viewer for obvious reasons, what's the problem with that? Louise, what, what is your issue with the male-dominated world of sexuality? So I think the problem you have with women being encouraged to imitate male, masculine sexuality, let's go masculine because obviously there is, you know, there's the average difference, but that not all men necessarily fall into this category. There's, a, there's like a big range. There's actually a much bigger range for men, interestingly, than there is for women. As with many male and female traits, you have men who are off the scale in terms of their sociosexuality, which is the, the, the term psychologists use to describe desire for sexual variety. And then you have plenty of men who, you know, behave like lesbians basically in their day-to-day lives. So the, the, like, there's a massive range. Um, the problem though, I think for, for the vast majority of women with imitating masculine sexuality is one, the physical consequences, you know, the fact that we're the ones suffering all the consequences of hormonal birth control that have to, that have to be gone through in order to have casual sex. We're the ones having unwanted pregnancies, um, going through abortions or having, having un, you know, unexpected um, children arriving in our lives. Like at the end of the day, men can cut and run in a way that women can't. Um, so there are all sorts of, you know, very concrete ways in which women are um, bearing the brunt of negative consequences of casual sex. I think there's also the psychological dimension, which is a bit more difficult to talk about, but which I think is very profound. You know, there are lots of ways in which male and female sexuality differs. One of the ways in which women are quite different from men is that we have a much lower sexual disgust threshold. It's much easier for us to sort of get the ick in a sexual encounter. Women tend to be much, much choosier about their sexual partners than men are. There's a very obvious evolved reason for this. It's because, you know, up until five five minutes ago, um, we didn't have access to reliable contraception, which meant that having any kind of sexual encounter was liable to lead to pregnancy or risk leading to pregnancy. So it obviously makes sense that women will have evolved to be choosy about who they potentially get pregnant from. You know, is the, is he going to hang around? Is he going to make a good father, et cetera, et cetera. So, the, and I think the problem with trying to kind of override that choosiness, which is what imitating male sexu- masculine sexuality entails, right? Trying to have sex like a man, trying to regard sex as casual, just a leisure activity, not having any sort of, um, innate meaning or specialness or, 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 or anything at all is that it, it forces women to try and suppress that instinct which is present in most women and sometimes very strongly and one of the things that I've um, write about a lot in the book is is you know magazine articles anecdotal evidence from um, women writing speaking whatever that 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 effort to try and suppress the the bonding instinct the instinct towards being picky, causes a lot of distress and sometimes that distress is displaced you know and sometimes that's that distress can be successfully suppressed I mean there's a whole genre of articles in women's mags that I write about which are about um 
how to stop yourself catching feelings, like strategies that you can use during sex to try and um, dissociate almost, to not bond with your partner, to not, it's things like don't make eye contact, um, take certain drugs, um, you know, get drunk, all this kind of stuff to try and suppress that instinct that very many women feel. And I think that, you know, you you look at, for instance, the like the orgasm gap, the fact that most women don't orgasm in casual encounters compared with men. Women are much more likely to orgasm with long-term committed partners. You look at all of the potential negative physical consequences of any casual encounter for women. And you look at the fact that women, you know, will say quite bluntly sometimes that they have to kind of suppress their instinct against casual sex in order to do it, in order to feel as though they're sort of, often women talk about it almost as if you have to like run the gauntlet. This is something like a phase in your life that you you have to go through, the, the kind of hookup phase on the route to a more committed relationship. If we turn to Ayala now, because Ayala, I know that you described yourself as polyamorous. Do you feel that you are in distress when you're in your polyamorous relationships that, that perhaps don't include a kind of monogamous traditional structure um no not at all uh but I, I suspect that like the kind of experience i have is not uh like necessarily in contradiction to louise as in louise like consistently says that there's a uh, like a small percentage of women uh which is who is like the weird so right so like if there any individual woman comes up and is like well that's not my experience then this is not really a contradiction. So I feel like like the crux of the issue is something more like what percentage of women are having this sort of thing? Um, is this thing sort of inherently damaging? I also want to point out that the original question was something like, is it bad that porn is targeted towards men? Um, which was, I'm still curious about the answer to, to this thing. Uh, but I think like a lot of the things like I kind of loosely agree with um, like, like, yes, casual sex is very different for men and women. Men and women evolved with very different sexual strategies. Uh, but it feels a little bit like pulling out all of the like worst possible framings and collecting them together into one thing that is like technically true, but like overall kind of feels like a vibe that misses a lot of really important stuff about female relationship to sexuality. Uh, and so there are a lot of points that I would have to go through very uh, carefully. Um, but in regards to myself, polyamory has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I knew that I was poly as soon as I heard what it was. I was like, oh, that's clearly what I am. Let's dig into some of those points then. What what are the the things that you pick up on there, and what Louise was saying that that you maybe disagree with? But there's something like, uh, for example, a reported like a dislike of casual sex after the fact. I believe that this is generally true. People are kind of unskilled at casual sex. I went through like kind of like a couple different phases of casual sex myself, and the first phase, where I was like, ah, let's go try this, was pretty terrible, uh, understandably. Like, not for me, but it was just, like, unskillful, right? Like, no orgasms. I was like, well, that was kind of unfulfilling. Uh, they seemed to get a lot more out of it than I did. Uh, this is very true. <laughs> but but there's also, like, this a frame of hindsight, right? Where, like, if you are told often that casual sex is bad for you, you're going to reparse casual sex as having been bad for you. Like, one example that is kind of like this is I uh, lived in a house full of cam girls for a year. Uh, we were, like, very close. We all did basically the same work. We worked together. We like talked about our deepest hopes and dreams, right? And it, we weren't like we didn't hide anything. We were, we bitched about it quite a lot. Uh, but you fast forward, you know, almost ten years now, and one of the girls there has happened to date a bunch of men who like really don't like sex work, and she, in my opinion, sort of revamped her past in order to be like, ah, that experience was damaging for me. And I was like, bitch, I was there. I heard you talking about it at the time. 
there was no hint that any of this was bad for you. It's just after when you enter a culture that's feeding you this information that you should feel bad about what you went through, that you're going to like reverse sort of develop this narrative. And, and then, like, to be fair, this can happen both ways. Like a lot of people, I think, will try to tell some women that, oh, the casual sex was definitely good for you and you should feel good about it, right? Like in both directions, any sort of like narrativizing the experience, like trying to tell women what they should feel is in my opinion, like, bad like my ideal would be to ask women like how do you actually relate to this like independently of what culture tells you to do check in with yourself do you actually like what's going on or do you actually not or like to what degree are you sort of just turning trying to conform to other people and and that is the message i could really get behind because i think that's a message that also would result in a lot of people realizing that they don't want to have casual sex and maybe a lot of people realizing that in fact they do and that that seems chill to me i'm Pro that. To take that example of your friend there who later on felt that there had been severe ramifications of, of engaging in casual sex, don't you think that that might just be a, a genuine moment of epiphany, realizing that they had made a bad decision? I mean, we, we all have it. We all have those moments. And, and looking back on things, sometimes, you know, hindsight is is twenty twenty. This is this is very true. Like, I cannot like say that I know her full mind, but uh the the thing that I when I was like close friends with her and we were going through this, like the way that she was appeared to be taking no damage at all from my perspective. It's it's my guess uh, that it was a, a hindsight thing. So I do agree with you that, you know, the power of narrative is amazing. Right. And clearly we we we, we restructure our, our memories according to narrative. Um, it is a phenomenon, though, I don't know if this necessarily applies to camming, but it is a phenomenon that a lot of women who've done in-person prostitution will talk about, particularly kind of like the worst end, you know, street-based, brothel-based prostitution will talk about, is that when you're in it, um, believing a narrative that it's okay is the way you survive. It's the way you get through what is like a, a fairly terrible experience. And then it generally is later, once you're no longer in that situation, that it's possible to kind of shake that off. Um, so Rachel Moran, for instance, who's the author of Paid For, um, who was prostituted as a teenager, she has described that process almost as being like in an abusive relationship. Though being prostituted as a teenager is a very different situation to what we're talking about here, which is consenting women, you know, going into sex work under yes, their own but volition. It's an, but it's, but it's a, an important counterpoint. She would have said at the time that she was there of her own volition and she carried on doing it, you know, after she she passed the age of consent. But we would all agree that she she was not able to consent at that age. We're, we're talking here about people who are fully able to consent, sound of mind, and in many ways are taking a job in the same way that you might take a job in a factory that you don't want to do. There are many jobs that people do that are unpleasant and they have to do for, for money. What what makes sex work any different to that, Louise? So I think that the, I, I, I describe this idea, right, the idea that sex is like any other kind of social interaction. You know, whether you know paid for sex, any kind of sex is is just comparable to to working in a factory, to shaking hands, to making coffee, you know, going surfing, whatever like neutral activity you want to compare it to. I I call that in the book sexual disenchantment, um, derived from Max Weber's idea of disenchantment as part of the Enlightenment, in that it's this idea that comes out of the sexual revolution that you know all of the the religious bourgeois whatever traditional norms of the past had to be done away with this idea of sex having any kind of special status let alone sacred status you know had to be done away with in order for people to sort of shake off the oppressive shackles of the past and i think the problem with that idea is I mean, twofold one i don't think actually people believe it 
in the vast majority of cases. I mean, Ayla might attribute this to a sort of sex negative culture. So I mean, we can talk about this, but in terms of how people actually live their lives, they overwhelmingly don't behave as if sex is like anything else. You know, like for all of people that, that, you know, there are people who, who do polyamory well and enjoy it. There are also on any given platform devoted to discussion of polyamory, you'll find people really struggling with jealousy, finding it really, really difficult to suppress that instinct to, to, you know, have that, have that instinct to be, um, to view sex as being unique compared with other kinds of relationships, you know, and the problem with trying to pretend that sex is you know, meaningless, just like anything else. If you can't have a special status for sex, you also can't have a special status for rape, which we do in law. We recognise that rape is worse than theft, right? Instinctively and also in, in you know, our legal codes. We recognise that sexual harassment has like a uniquely harmful effect on its victims, right? Like the problem with trying to view sex as not having any kind of special status is there are all sorts of effects downstream of that, which I think are really unwelcome and are particularly really unwelcome for women. So I think that the sexual disenchantment, you know, it's a, it's, it's largely a rhetorical move. It's largely, uh, you know, a, a way to kind of affirm liberal ideas about, about, about sex in the post-sexual revolution era. And it's, you know, the, the problem is that the fact that people do viscerally feel that, that sex has some unique status is quite difficult to rationalize. It's quite difficult to slot that into any kind of logical argument system because it, it's, 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 it's quite intangible. If we call it sacredness, do, Ayala, do you think that sex is sacred? Uh, my guess is that sex is like a greater flexibility in like meaningfulness than maybe what I'm hearing from you. Like I agree that for some sections of the population or like sociological or social narratives or something, like sex is treated like very seriously. And in other types, it's kind of not. And, and my guess is that people are much more flexible along the spectrum than you might think. Like uh, I worked at a factory, terrible hours, and then I escaped that into sex work being, uh, and eventually into prostitution. Um, and like, from my experience, I, I, like after I did this, I was shocked that people had placed so much meaning on it in a way that prevented me from escaping like terrible jobs to begin with. Cause like, I didn't go straight into sex work because of that meaning that people placed on it. And then when I did, I was like, fuck that, that meaning that people loaded up onto sex uh, like prevented me from living basically my best life. And I know a lot of other sex workers who feel the same way. And I'm not saying that everybody should. I also know some sex workers who tried sex work and they were like, shit, like I can't not have the meaning here. Um, but there's lots of like changes, right? Like you can shift from one section of meaning to the other. And so I think my problem with this is not that we're saying that sex has a lot of meaning, but rather like eliminating the possibility that we can remove that or that some people, for some people, this is the correct way to approach the situation. Uh, I, it feels also like kind of like double standardy for people to be so concerned about me as a sex worker and to be considered this to be like a reflection on my life and stuff. But the factory was horrible. It was horrible. And that was another thing that in hindsight, I also rationalized. Like when I was working at the factory, I was like, this is fine. This is my life. This is what I have to go through. And then after I got out of the factory, I was like, wow, I was actually suppressing so much of myself in order to handle this. And I think we do this all the time. We all go through the thing where like right now we're living lives where probably if we got transferred to an alien planet that had like zero scarcity, we would look back on our current lives right now with a lot of horror. 
So you just mix this in with like social stuff. I think that this is tr also true for like the polyamory monogamy distinction. Like you're correct in that like a lot of polyamory discussions are talking about like what jealousy issues, but like monogamy also has like dead bedroom problems, right? Like both are relationship structures that require some sort of like, like negotiation of your desires and what you can achieve in your life. And both of them have like pretty severe downsides. And as a sex worker, I see a huge amount of the downsides in monogamy from men, supposedly monogamous men who come see me because of failures in their monogamous relationships. Like it, it feels like my, my overall issue here feels like a, like people are pointing a tighter laser eye at like the non-standard, non-normal, the, the deviant types of sexual approaches than they are at the conservative like uh, socially accepted ones. So talking about your your case specifically, Isla, you say there that you've got husbands coming who maybe their marriage has broken down. If if you were not there to service the kind of the, the needs that they then had, do you think that they would turn back to their wives and have a frank conversation about their sex life? Or do you think that you are offering them a way out? Well, I the, see. So my data set is basically I would ask the guys that I saw, are you married? And if they said yes, then I would ask, so why are you seeing me? So I get like sort of, you know, it is like a little anecdotal here. Um, but the general sense that I got was that most of them had wives that weren't interested in them anymore. Basically wives that had like a bunch of kids or like were, you know, had health issues and basically just their sex drive was zero. And sometimes I would ask like, well, have you considered like bringing it up to her? Like, have you talked with her about it? And the majority of the responses I made, 60, 70 percent, were like horror. They were like, they're like, I don't want to destroy my entire life. One like a guy, it was common for guys to be like, if I bring it up with her, I think she would leave me. Doesn't that suggest that actually, if you weren't there to to counsel them, that they might actually go and speak to their wives about it? That the point is that by allowing these kind of sexual avenues by which married men can go and find a kind of proxy sexual partner that they don't have to confront the real emotional issues at the heart of their relationships. Um, this this is like possibly true to some degree, but like my intuition is not that this is the case. Like a lot of the men had been sexless for 10 years before finally trying to find a sex worker. Like most men don't feel great about the sex, like making their wife unhappy, like potentially to do this. Like it is pretty high cost. A lot of them are risking like damage to their life. Uh, most guys I talked to, I got the impression that they had made at least some effort. Not some of them. No, I'm not going to say that every dude was like this. Some guys were like, fuck it. Like, I don't give a shit. Like our relationship is totally separate from this. And I'm just going to like fuck other people. Cause that's what I want. Like I totally admit that there were some guys like this, but it was not the majority. In fact, I got the impression that, uh, seeing these men actually like probably helped save them from divorce because like their other option was not talking to their wives. Their other option was leaving their wife because they couldn't talk to their wife. Right. So it was sort of like this safe, tiny outlet that allowed them to maintain longer, more dedicated relationships. Presumably their wives would have left them if they'd known, though. So this yeah. was a secret, secret encounters. Yeah. Monogamy clearly has its downsides, too, that everything, everything in the whole entire world has trade offs. Right. That's like a fundamentally conservative insight. Um, I think, though, that and, and uh, you know, I completely take your point that there are some people for whom polyamory is great. There are some people for whom sex work is great. There are some people who are just temperamentally um, much more suited to, you know, um, non-conventional sexual lives. And, you know, you appear to be in that category, along with many other people. I completely accept that. I think the problem, though, is that if we only, you know, if we only look at the individual level, if that's the only unit of analysis that we have, thinking about individual preference. I mean, even aside from the fact that individual 
individuals are fallible. I mean, as you were saying, that when you were working in a factory, your your narrative was was self-protective and thinking that it was okay. And then later you realised it wasn't. I mean, we as human beings have an amazing capacity for self-deception that I think all of us can, you know, personally attest to. So, you know, there's there's that there's that, like how do people actually assess whether what they're doing is really good for them and whether they're going to regret it in the future, which is, you know, genuinely very difficult. But I think the other thing that I'm I'm interested in and which is much more difficult to to talk about within a kind of liberal framework is how this scales, right? So one of the things that I write about in the last chapter of my book is the fact that there are all sorts of ways in which societies that have a monogamous marriage system do better than societies that don't. Even though only about 20% of societies on the anthropological record have been monogamous, including ours, you know, up, up until recently, we don't really have a sort of monogamous marriage system anymore post-sexual revolution, but um, they tend to be more affluent. They tend to have lower rates of crime. They tend to have lower rates of... Um, spousal abuse, child abuse, you know, there are all sorts Compared of Compared to polygamous which, cultures? Yes. I mean, there are basically no polyandrous cultures, so we're pretty right. much talking about a comparison between... Yeah, I, I'm not surprised that this is the case. I, I would guess that if you consider, compared polygamous cultures to monogamous cultures, monogamous cultures would probably do better. Yeah. And so, you know, similarly with um, polyamory, which obviously is not necessarily polygamous, there's much more flexibility in modern, poly, poly, in modern polyamory. But... Even if there are some people for whom it suits them very well, I'm really, really not convinced that it would scale. The idea that if this became, if we if we entirely removed all of the norms, which were, you know, they're, they're basically gone anyway, but if we did sort of the final sweep away of any norms remaining from the pre-sexual revolution era, I think there are some people who are temperamentally suited to that kind of radical freedom. I think there are a lot of people whose lives would become a lot worse because actually I think that, I think norms exist for a reason. And are they, are you there's a are you arguing them. against like a position that's saying that we should all be poly? <laughs> I'm arguing against the the idea that we shouldn't have norms. That there should well, be. Is anybody arguing that? Well, you were suggesting earlier that the that there's this kind of um, too much critical attention paid to so-called deviant forms of sexuality and not enough critical attention paid to traditional forms of sexuality. I presume with the idea that actually the traditional forms you know, really do deserve much more of a kicking than they've had. And I'm, I'm, I'm coming to their defence. I'm saying that if there, are, um, if there are things like monogamous marriage, which have proven over very many centuries, millennia, to, to produce very um, safe and stable societies compared to their like realistic alternative, not compared to a utopian alternative, compared to a realistic alternative that has actually occurred in other parts of the world and other eras, are we are we making a grave error in tearing down those norms, not knowing what the likely consequences would be at scale? Yeah, I mean, like, I agree, like, Chesterton's fence is a thing, right? Like, we don't have, like, a good idea of what it's going to look like to have a polyamorous culture. But one, I suspect, like, uh, the thing that I'm advocating is that people check in with themselves with what they really want. And my guess is, like, around, like, 70% of people would be, like, kind of mostly monogamous. And like maybe 30% of people would be like kind of mostly polyamorous if they did some sort of like genuine checking, uh, very loose numbers. Uh, so like the kind of society that like would result out of this would be like still mostly monogamous. Second, we don't really have a good comparison with polyamory. Like we have the comparison with polygamy, which like has downsides for very clear reasons that like to me polyamory like does not. Like we have like the problem of like the the males that can't get partners like the the un, the competition among males for like very limited females uh which is we're post uh, like birth control at this point 
uh, and like like you say, like this does change a lot. Like we're now able to explore sexuality fully. And I feel like we don't know what the future is. And I'm down with being like cautious and being like, hey, is this going to like systematically not meet the needs of of someone? But if you have each individual checking in with themselves about what their needs are, then this seems like kind of okay to me. Because I'm assuming, like, I, I do not want a culture where we're like, all right, fuck Mormons, fuck monogamy. If you're monogamous right now, you probably should stop that. I think it's actually bad for you. Like, this is not what I'm arguing. Like, I'm arguing like a critical individual assessment. And like, whatever comes out of a critical individual assessment, my guess is going to be better for culture than what we have right now. I agree that polyamory is different from polygamy. Having said that, if you look at things like dating app data, um, we do seem to have when you when you when you lift the 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 um the monogamous restriction right when you're able to have um it when it's become socially acceptable to have um simultaneous or concurrent um partners as is now the case in the kind of casual sex culture we have an amazing capacity to kind of wend us wend ourselves back towards a polygamous system i mean that is basically what you see on dating apps where you have high status men attracting lots of partners and the bottom 80% of men attracting very few at all. You do end up... Is this not the case for women too? Well, women, it's easier for them to... Well, women get attracted towards, you know, being the, the like, multiple girlfriends of the of the high-status men. There's 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 that asymmetry there where women are much more... The hypergamy th- thesis, right, that women are much more drawn towards higher-status men, um, meaning that higher-status men tend to be accumulating wives, which is exactly, I mean, I say wives, partners, but that's exactly what the polygamous system is. That is exactly as, you know, seems to be actually our species' default. And since we've, you know, post-sexual revolution, since we've removed the previous expectation of monogamous marriage, that seems to be where we are headed back. And I I worry that we, we set out to do kind of utopian new forms of, of human relationships, you know, bearing in mind, of course, that we do have the pill. There are certain ways in which we have a completely different material set of circumstances from our ancestors. That's true. We also have things like antibiotics to deal with um, sexually transmitted infections. You know, there are there are like different parameters within which we're working. But equally, I think, is it more likely that we're going to end up with a kind of much better utopian system that's completely brand new? Or is it more likely that we're actually going to end up with an old system, which is worse than what we had before? Yeah, there's, there's a couple of points here. Like one is uh, like, I agree that like uh, dating in general is not uh, equal or something. Um, but we also have a thing where like in a polyamorous culture, if a lot of women are dating like the top alpha male, uh, those women are also free to like engage sexually with people who are not the top alpha male. Uh, so we have something a little bit like trickle down. I also did a survey of around 5,000 people in relationships and found that the uh, satisfaction for uh, polyamory. So I asked them on a scale, like, how poly are you on a scale from one to seven? And had them rate a bunch of factors about how they view their relationships. And it was very much a U-shape. So people who are extremely monogamous or extremely polyamorous have basically the same relationship satisfaction. But people who are like... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com cool fact 
a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Not fully. Um, that, that's where the relationship quality really takes a hit. Uh, so this seems to indicate to me that there's some sort of like stable version of polyamory, but like you have to kind of take it like as a whole group as opposed to like certain uh, bits of it. If we're talking about our, our utopian society here, maybe it's polyamorous, maybe it's monogamous. Is there an ideal when it comes to how we build our relationships? Louise, do you, for example, disapprove of Ayala's work as a sex worker? In your ideal society, would, would OnlyFans not exist? Disapprove is, a, is not a word I would use. I think, that, I think that it is clearly the case that some individuals do well on OnlyFans. You know, most don't. I think we agree on the, the fact that OnlyFans is insanely unequal and the vast majority of um, like you pages, too, like publishing. Yeah, all publishing. Yeah. It's, you know, it's, yeah, this is true of all sorts of things. Um, I think that the problem with normalizing OnlyFans, making it, making it seem especially attractive, is that the vast majority of women in particular who become content creators are not going to make any real money and are likely to suffer negative consequences down the track, um, potentially in terms of things like harassment, stalking, whatever that they might um, receive from clients. But I think actually more profoundly in terms of their future relationship prospects. So if we're just taking a utilitarian perspective here, the majority of women are being harmed by OnlyFans rather than being helped by OnlyFans. Would you get rid of OnlyFans tomorrow if you were uh, the matriarch in this new society? I think it would be better if OnlyFans didn't exist. That's not the same thing as saying that I think it should be banned because there are obviously all sorts of downstream consequences of that kind of legislation which might be, which might be, do more harm than good. I think it's very. I think it'd be very, very difficult to to ban OnlyFans or similar sites. But I, I, I think on balance they have a uh, net negative impact on society. Would Would you approve of OnlyFans if, say, before signing up, a girl got like statistics on how likely it was for her to make various amounts of money? Like, like ninety percent of creators make under like one thousand dollars a month or something like this. I think that would be good. I mean, I, I imagine the platforms would not want to do that yeah. <laughs> because it's obviously going to limit their profit making ability I think that would be good I think honestly the other thing that I would want a lot of um young women who are naive to be aware of is the fact that even though we no longer as often talk about the sexual double standard and even though men are less likely to admit to the fact that they still um 
ascribe to sexual double standard. They do. And I think that one of the worst consequences of OnlyFans for very many women, which isn't talked about nearly enough, is the fact that it becomes that much harder afterwards to find a committed relationship, which actually most women say is what they want long term, because men are judgmental about it, basically. And it's very difficult to dissuade them otherwise. My guess is that this is very well known in women cultures. Like I've joined so many like discussion groups where girls like thinking about getting into OnlyFans or like already doing OnlyFans. And a huge amount of that discussion is centered around like, how do I, how much is this going to damage my mate prospects? Like how much should I hide it from my potential mates? Like how can I do OnlyFans in a way where it's not going to leak to potential mates? Like this to me is like, like one of the top things, at least in my practice, like in practice that I have seen women consider. To me, it doesn't feel like an under, like a, like an overlooked aspect at all. I guess it, it depends on your sampling, but I would say that that is, it's just as important to know that as it is to know your likelihood of making any money. Doesn't that suggest we should be driving towards a society which is more sexually open than we even are now? Because I suppose if we got into a place where nobody had any taboos around sex work, then we wouldn't have to deal with that problem. I think good luck, unfortunately. I mean, I, ju- I just think that the, 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 the nature of human beings is such that we can't, I mean, it all it comes back to what we were talking about at the top of the show about the um, the fact that people try try as they might, most people find it very, very difficult to actually like live sexual disenchantment as if it were true, to actually believe it or walk the walk. Um, we seem to have a very strong instinct towards regarding sex as being special. Men seem to have a very strong instinct towards mate guarding, um, trying to dissuade people from feeling this way is a, is a serious uphill struggle. And I think any kind of political project based on the idea that we can undo human nature is one that's doomed to failure. I, th- I think I'd like generally mostly agree with this, but also there's something like, like for a small example, I, I was raised in very conservative culture and I was very unattractive to men who had long hair. And then when I moved to like a liberal culture, after a while, I started to become attracted to men with long hair, uh, which was very surprising to me. I did not think that this was possible. And I think this is something like changing culture, like changes signaling in a way that I didn't anticipate. Like in this new culture, like men having long hair signaled signaled masculinity or like signaled the, the sexually desirable things. And it was like the under thing that mattered, not necessarily the signaling. And similarly, I think there's like cultures that I've entered that changed my, like the way that I viewed, like the sort of thing that you're describing, like, uh, uh, like how much people are upset at you if you're sexually promiscuous. Um, and it's like really robust subcultures. Like I've never had a problem with being a sex worker. Like I, I've never once have had a point where like I wanted to date somebody and they wouldn't date me because I was a sex worker because of these really, really robust cultures. And these cultures are pretty sustainable. Like I know a lot of people who have kids uh, who are also poly. Um, and I'm down with like you arguing that maybe this is like a, a small percentage of the population, but from my experience, it feels like like a very real and sustainable percentage or something. I suppose I'd say that historically that doesn't seem to have been true and that there have clearly been lots of very interesting experiments with kind yeah, of... But historically it's pre-birth control. Like pre-birth control, like, to, know, like it's hard for me to... circumstances are completely different, but I don't think our minds are very different. I think that we do still basically have minds evolved for hunter-gatherer life because yeah. that's you know 90 percent of our of our species history yeah to some um, degree like i think that this yeah. is like probably yeah. why women are like very into bdsm is because like evolutionarily and historically like they were you had to be aroused by you know powerful men in order to 
to survive. Um, but like also to some degree, like a lot of it is, is quite cultural too. Like we've, we've seen like a d- lot of different sexual structures throughout history and people inside those structures seem to be like, this is chill and normal. And like, I'm not really that upset by it. Uh, so I, I do think that we have like a little bit more flexibility with like the sexual structures that, that we have, at least evidenced by my exposure, like going between cultures where I'm like, oh, this is normal. And everybody just treated it as such. So both of you seem to be arguing there that there's a certain amount of nature involved here and we're trying to push against nature and to impose social norms upon it. Is, is there an argument for letting nature run riot and just allowing people to kind of tap into their most primal selves? I think the problem with that, I guess the, the idea being just sort of absolute liberation, just allowing people to to make whatever feels right to them. I mean, I'd say one problem with that is the fact that some people have... Um, you know, dark, destructive, horrible desires. Actually, probably a lot of people do. Like, human sexuality is not necessarily um, nice and pro-social at all. And so you have to think about how you're sort of going to manage the desires of people that are, like, when, when that desire is necessarily destructive to others. So that's, that's that's like, one difficult problem. The other difficult problem is that we're not dealing with a level playing field on a biological level. And this is what I, what I brought up right at the very beginning, the fact that we've got basically one sex is much more vulnerable inherently than the other sex. And, you know, how do you deal with that that asymmetry, even in a world with birth control, even in a world with, you know, antibiotics and all the various things that we have, how do you manage that asymmetry is, I think, a question that all civilizations have, have grappled with. And no one has ever come up with a free-for-all as the, as the best solution, because clearly it actually would, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be durable, it wouldn't actually work. Digital sex work might be an answer there, though. I mean, Ayala is behind a screen. She is um, in many ways invulnerable to male violence and she is being paid for sexual acts, which she finds pleasurable, I assume. And so isn't that a win-win? Or, I mean, a step further in sex robots, right? Like that's where, that's potentially where we're headed. Um, And then there would be no ethical issues in terms of the... um, the, the consent of sex robots and so on, and, you know, it would bypass all of the kind of feminist arguments over over sex work that have been going on for so long. I think, though, that there are some... I mean, I'd be interested to know what Ayla thinks about this, actually. I think that there are some there are some potentially really grim consequences for men, actually, from, from sex robots becoming normalised. The focus is normally on the, the ill effects on women, but I actually think that, you know, having a class of, like, men who basically just spend all all day indoors playing video games and having sex with their sex robots seems like a fairly bleak future for that portion of mankind. Yeah, I mean, it seems nicer if they could have access to real women. Like, I would be sad. Like, like to be, I do, I, I, I used to do OnlyFans, but to be clear, I've also been an IRL prostitute. Um, like, also have been subject of male violence in that case as well. Uh, but I, I like out of all of the sex work forms that I have done, the in real per, per, in person feels the healthiest to me for both me and the men. It feels like the others feel like some sort of like weird warped version of human interaction that feels like it kind of objectifies us both more. And like it, it sure it's like safer to some degree. I mean, but you can take steps to to be safe in person. I, I, like if, in my opinion, like the healthiest future society, like the dominant form of sex work would be like human to human eye contact skin contact like just like god intended you know <laughs> so what about these sex robots i mean that's certainly not what god intended but it's a lot safer for everyone involved isn't it 
But like, like, are, like, are we optimizing for safety? Like, I'm down. Like, there's ways to optimize for safety. So, so, sorry. There's a lot of points in here. Uh, one, like, sure, I, I like the idea of sex robots existing. I think, like, if men can have like an outlet that they need that is affordable and accessible to them, this seems good. I'm like generally pro people independently pursuing what they want. Uh, and if that's sex robots, then go for it. Uh, it, it, I'm not really too worried about this having like impacts on things. Like, like I did a, a study just recently with uh, 20,000 men and found that like the amount that they watched porn and the types of porn they watched was like basically not correlated with anything else I tested. Um, like, like very, very minorly, which was very surprising to me. Lots of people that argue that like, like porn use and so it is, is correlated with things. And so my, my guess, like my intuitions based on this is that like widespread use of sex robots would also not significantly impact things. Um, but I don't think we have good data on this. So I don't have like very strong intuitions in any direction. It's mostly like, I'm not sure we'd have to like do a study or like interview a bunch of people to sort of find out how this is impacting them. So do you think that the skin to skin contact, as you said there, is superior to this kind of digital sex work that we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. Because it's like, it's, it's just, it feels really dehumanizing. Like I said, for both parties with like only fans, I'm not dealing with a man. I'm dealing with the, the collection of men. I'm dealing with like the statistical likelihood of man clicking on this thing. Uh, it's very robotic. It's like, I'm just treating men for like the money they have to offer. And similarly, the men, this is encouraging men to treat women the same way. Like you have like a billion women and it's sort of just like, like, cycling through them you're not really developing a relationship with any of them and again i am pro people pursuing what they want in their own time i'm happy only fans exists um but i noticed it was much better for my mental health uh to to do it in person it just felt so much better and more fulfilling to be able to touch an individual person are we suggesting that it's sacred though i mean louise you started our conversation by talking about how sacred sex is and the act of sex would you say that in person sexual contact it is preferable in some way to this new digitized form of sexuality? So I think that if you if you could somehow arrange it so that the only people who were selling sex of any kind, you know, let's say in all our prostitution, just for sake of argument, um, were people who, you know, had a vocation, right? Genuinely didn't find it distressing, genuinely had like safety systems in place to reduce risk. Um, I mean, we know that the risk is still extraordinarily high for sex work compared with other lines of work, but, you know, that, that there are ways of reducing risk, et cetera. And, you know, if we could kind of, and if the only the only men buying sex were, you know, filtered for non-aggression and all this kind of stuff, you know, like the perfect, perfect system, then maybe. The problem is that I don't think it's possible to have that perfect, perfect system because, I mean, all societies have prostitution of like varying, varying scales um, it's basically a solution to the to the sociosexuality gap, the fact that men are much, on average, much hornier and much more desirous of sexual variety than women are. Um, prostitution is a way of kind of bridging that gap by providing men who aren't otherwise getting the sex that they want access to a class of women who are like reserved for that for that purpose. The problem is that the prostituted class of women in all times and places are not necessarily women who are happy to be there and are temperamentally well suited to it and are safe, et cetera, et cetera. They're so much more likely to be women who are there because they're poor or because they have some other kind of like difficult life circumstance like drug addiction or pimping or whatever it is that means that they're forced into that situation because there just aren't enough women who are really happy to do it to meet the demand. And this is the 
this is the reason behind the Nordic model where demand, where the, where the buyers are criminalised and the sellers are decriminalised, in that it disincentivizes men from buying sex and therefore means that the supply is, is reduced because the demand is also reduced. And so you end up with fewer women um, trafficked in particular, but also fewer women who really don't want to be there because of other kind of coercive circumstances ending up in prostitution. So I think that, you know, I can I can agree that there are like perfect scenarios. The problem is that when we're talking about policymaking or, or lawmaking or even just thinking about like norms, we're not dealing just with perfect situations. We're dealing with reality. And like, I think I share like Louise's perspective in that, like, I want people to do what feels good for them. But also it feels like a little unfair. Like if if uh, a lot of the, the radical feminists had their way and got to protect uh, women against sex work, um, I would have had much worse options when I was trying to escape like the factory work. Uh, I wouldn't have had that option. Like it wasn't it wasn't my first choice. I didn't want to do it. Right. Like I was not happy about it. I was when I first went into it, I was like really like embarrassed and humiliated. Um, but it was but if you I would have rather done that than any of my other options. And so like the idea of like removing this, I'm like, OK, like I get that you're trying to remove an embarrassing and humiliating option. But if somebody's going to that option, it's because it's the best one out of their other options. And I'm like, I don't know how to convey this with enough strength, like. Like, like these people are making choices based on what's available to them. And it's like from only from the outside where you're like, ah, removing the amount of choices you have is better. I do agree that this is good if the choices are misrepresented. If people are consistently like, ah, I think sex work, I'm going to make a bunch of money and it's not going to be distressing at all. Um, then I would be like, ah, okay, I we should have more education about like what actually is involved. And this is true for me. Like when I talk about sex work, I'm like very clear. Like when I, in my articles about how to do sex work, the first couple paragraphs have a, this, these are the downsides. Some people cannot mentally handle this. Please be aware and evaluate if this is actually right for you. And in my opinion, this is the way that we should like preface things, but then also like trust people to make their own decisions about it. Uh, but yeah, the, the access to sex work even even when it's shitty, is still better than anything else, like, if you're taking that option. There used to be quite a high barrier to entry for sex work, if you're talking about street prostitution. Whereas now, with things like OnlyFans, the barrier has been lowered massively. Is, is that a good thing, that more and more people have access to a potential sex work career? Yeah. I mean, like, I know, like, a bunch of single moms or women with health issues, like, women who, like, are struggling to, like, feed their kids on their own, who said, oh, I tried OnlyFans and it gave me not even that much money, like, an extra $300 a month, but, like, now I can pay my rent. Like, there's a whole bunch of people for whom their lives are really drastically improved by not that amount of money, typically people who are really disadvantaged in some way. Like, it disproportionately assists, like, the poor. Or people, like, I would consider to be lower class, people who, like, were culturally sort of, like, priced out of the the better-paying jobs, uh, which is why I think this worked for me so well. Like, I grew up very, very conservative, no access to education. Uh, and so a lot of people are like, oh, well, you should just like go to college and get an education and then get a job. I'm like, for some people, their lives just don't work like that. And for some people, like like being able to have easily accessible side income that you don't need training for or like the elite approval or like credentials is like incredibly beneficial and life changing. And I've known so many women for whom this is the case. I take that point, although I do think it's worth emphasizing the fact that the Drug and alcohol addiction is extraordinarily common among sex workers, right? Like not necessarily the only, like the only fans end of the spectrum is clearly, I think we all agree the much less dangerous traumatic end of it, but that it's also not, you know, representative of the whole spectrum of sex work, some of which is dire. And 
is very, very common for women to end up taking drugs and using alcohol as a way of dealing with the emotional fallout of prostitution. And that means that you're not actually ending up in a better situation at all. You end up potentially spiralling downwards and getting stuck. So, I mean, I completely take your point that there are other forms of work which are dreadful. I think that I can come, I'm not really a radical feminist at all. I think I can comfortably speak for radical feminists though, and that they tend to be very like left wing on matter. They don't think that any woman should be in a situation where she can't feed her children unless she's doing sex work. I mean, I think we, we are all completely in agreement on that. I do also recognise that we live in the real world and there are situations where that might seem like the best option. I mean, the other problem, of course, being that until you've actually start, because sort of lay people's understanding of the sex industry tends to be very poor, it can be very difficult to know what you will, how you will find prostitution until you've actually done it. So saying at the outset, I think I'm well suited to this, I think it will be fine. You know, I've, I've read through my checklist of, of warnings and I think it's fine, isn't actually quite the same as actually doing it. Because as we were, you know, as we've been talking about, you know, sex has this kind of very visceral effect on people. It's very, very emotional. It can be very hard to, to rationalise it or even to have insight into your own, you know, your own emotions, your own desires. I think this is particularly true when people are young. Young people are much, much more susceptible to 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 group think to to influence from other people and so on so i think that you know it's going back to like yes i agree there are some situations where i can see it being the right the, the best decision for for someone the problem is that when you when you make a move towards normalization destigmatization and presenting this as a perfectly valid career route you are going to end up with people going down that career route for whom it is an absolute disaster and it ruins their lives and they might not otherwise if it wasn't presented to them as the new legitimate thing, they might not have done it. And I think that's the, that's the trade-off that we're dealing with here, and it's a really difficult one. Well, one point I wanted to make is that there's a lot of like talk about like alcohol and drug stuff with sex workers, which I agree is true. They have like much higher rates of drug use. Um, but also, like if say we have a world where we uh, like dramatically criminalize uh, something like plumbing, like plumbers are really stigmatized, and um, if you plumb, then people are like, ah, I'm not sure I want to date you. We have a bunch of laws about it. And if you get assaulted as a plumber, like you can't go to the police. So they'll put you in jail. Um, I would expect to see in this kind of case that the kind of people who would gravitate towards plumbing are people who are unsuccessful in other aspects of their life or like unable to make it in like standard life and probably have a lot of overlap with drug and alcohol use. Um, like my guess is that the, the, this use just comes out of basically a cor- correlation effect, not necessarily causation. Although we see it in countries which have decriminalized or legalized sex industries as well. I mean, I think that the, I agree with you that clearly the stigma makes all sorts of things worse in all sorts of ways, but also I'm not convinced that the stigma is an after effect of the law. I think that actually the stigma seems to stick to the sex industry across time and place. And I think it comes back to this problem of, of you know, the sociosexuality gap requiring a prostituted class of women. Most women don't want to be in that class. It's very hard to persuade anyone to think that that isn't you know a bad outcome for those women and the stigma flows from that yeah I, a, a lot of this feels like it's coming out of like i think like I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying but like part of me like has a resistance to it because it feels like you're sort of implicitly uh, telling women that they should feel bad for these things in some way like like i wish i could hear more like yes yeah, some women are like that and if you're not it's chill um but like like, I think that, like, the stigma is the thing that creates uh, a lot of people uh, 
people's like drug and alcohol issues here. Um, maybe not entirely, but like generally to a very large degree. And when we talk about the narrative that like sex is extremely meaningful, that makes sex meaningful. Like we create the meaning in sex by by t- discussing with this amount of weight. Like when women try prostitution, for example, like I my when you were talking about, it, I was like, well, you should just like try it once or twice and see how it works for you. And if you don't like it, then stop. Uh, and this to me seems like pretty fine. And if you have like a bad experience, it doesn't seem to me like it needs to be traumatizing. But if we treat it with this level of like gravitas, uh, then it's going to create that trauma in people. And I wish that like when I was in a really sex negative culture, I could have heard more messaging about how it's like okay to be sexually promiscuous if you want to. Uh, like if I had like been surrounded by you know people giving me like like the kind of message that you're giving me, I think I would have ended up with a lot more shame and guilt overall. I, I, I acknowledge that it can seem um, condescending and judgmental, the kind of femi- the, the, the anti, anti-porn, anti-prostitution feminism, but, you know, we, we all know that the real, like, the really brutal attitudes towards sex workers come overwhelmingly from, from sex buyers, right? Like, if you look at any kind of, like, review platform um, where men will, will describe their feelings towards women they buy sex from, they have I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions, but that we know that that men who buy sex are more likely to be sexually aggressive, more likely to admit to rape outside of the sex industry. You know, this is. I I think that the effort to, I think the problem with the effort to de- to destigmatize and kind of hope that after that we will somehow kind of um, arrive at a at a at a at a sex industry that really is just like any other industry is that it is basically based on theory it's based on faith that all of this that the stigma is causing the problem not the stigma is attached to the innate problem which is actually has much more to do with the fact that um most women find prostitution very distressing and most sex buyers don't treat the women they buy sex from with proper respect so just looking at society as a whole now post the sexual revolution how have things changed for women? Isla, I'll turn to you first. Uh, I'm not, there's probably surveys about people's like self-reported quality of life, but I, my, my, I think they've gone down a little bit, right? Like women reported slightly lower satisfaction, if I remember correctly. Um, yeah, but but like it's it's very confusing. It's like what metric do you want to go by? Because like a lot of people report like less satisfaction despite like quality of life improving in a lot of metrics. Like from the outside, if you're like ah somebody in like 500 AD versus somebody in like 2022. Uh, we clearly know who should be having the better life quality. So like so much of this is dependent on narrative. Um, but no, I don't have a, a great answer for this. I think it's like definitely in flux, right? Like we don't know what the fuck is going on. Technology is like rapidly changing the norms with which we're engaging with each other. And all of the stuff that's been really stable throughout history, we're like, ah, like this isn't working for us anymore. We have to find some sort of like new way of approaching uh, our lives. And it, it makes sense to me that there's like a lot of distress as people are like trying to figure out their relationship to this new system. So Louise, as someone who's offering a, a new way, at least one new way, do you think that we've taken a wrong turn in history and we need to write the course? And I agree that with everything that Ayla just said. I think that they, so it does seem to be the case that even though women's um, rights and freedoms have clearly improved drastically in the last few generations, women don't report being happier. I mean, it's difficult, obviously, because happiness is such a, a, a slippery thing to measure. Um, but, it, you know, it's certainly the case, for instance, that women are now actually burdened with more work than they previously were because they're now doing housework and childcare and they're also doing paid work and everyone is dependent on two full-time incomes. And, you know, there are all sorts of ways in which actually the, what what appear from one angle to be rights and privileges 
from another angle end up being um, burdens and sources of stress um, for women and for everyone else. So um, I definitely don't think it's a simple it's a simple answer. I think that I'm I'm I'm, I'm fundamentally extremely skeptical about the whole idea of progress, the whole idea of history having a shape, and that shape, you know, moving ever onwards and upwards towards greater happiness. I think that history has history comes in cycles. It's very complex. Everything has has trade offs, and I think that you know, as Ella says, we are we are reckoning with these vast material changes. The one that I'm primarily interested in in my book is the pill, but it's not by any means the only change that we've seen in our lives and, and are continuing to see. And I think actually, if you look at, um, you know, I basically don't accept this idea of like the great woman theory of feminist history, where the, the thing that drives feminist feminist change is, is, is like particularly charismatic women. They clearly have been charismatic women, but I think the thing that's driven change for women has primarily been technological and the, and the, the you know, the washing machine, the tampon, whatever you want to name. And the, and the points, if you look at the, you know, the history, when you see, feminist thinking flaring up tend to be at the points where you have some important material flux so you have you know the internal combustion engine and you have suffrage and you have the second world war and 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 the, the move away from industrial economy and then you have the second wave and i think now possibly there is another flare up and there's another kind of reckoning with with feminist ideas because we're seeing the next revolution which is which is the which is the the, the online revolution and I and I and I I think it's I think it's really important to be thinking about sexual difference in that space because it may appear as if we are just kind of these genderless, um, you know, economic units um, who can all participate in the knowledge economy on a completely even footing and stuff. But actually, sexual difference exists, and it and 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 it, and it and it will it will persist um, until, I guess, the transhumanists finally have their way. <laughs> and Ayala, do you feel that you're an agent of change in this kind of peak of the sexual revolution? or this new revolution that Louis is talking about? An agent of change. I, I feel like I just want to defend people like me. Like, it feels like, uh, like, especially in in recent years, it's been increasing. It feels like I'm, like, fighting against this push of women, sorry, uh, people who feel like they're, uh, like, like, disrespecting me because solely of my sexual promiscuity and, like, the way that I like to approach sex. And it feels like there's like more shame and judgment about it, like growing. I don't know if it's just because I'm exposed to different places of the internet or if this is actually a movement, but I feel like really protective of it. I'm like, no, like this is, I am okay the way that I am. And I really want to give that message to anybody who's like me. I like to be like living like me, it can be a wonderful, healthy and fulfilling thing. And you don't have to feel shame or like you need to hide. And so if, if there's people like me out there, I really want to take a stand and have like a bold, unapologetic ownership of that um, and that feels like the, the thing that I'm fighting for. Well that feels like a great place to end. Thank you so much Louise and Ayala. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much both of you. At the very least we've come up with a new girl band that nobody knew they needed. <laughs> that was Louise Perry and Ayala coming to some points of agreement but also some serious points of disagreement about the success or failure of the sexual revolution. Thanks to them for coming on, to you for watching, this was Unheard.